There's an episode of The Twilight Zone called The Four of Us Are Dying. And it's a story about a man who can change his face and look like somebody else just by concentrating on that person. So in the episode, he reappears as a woman's dead boyfriend, and she is in total shock to see him again. She's absolutely awestruck. And when the man is chased down an alley by some thugs who are looking for him, he changes his face, and they are shocked to see that he's now actually someone else. So every time he appears as someone else, the people are in awe. They are awestruck that his face has changed. Well, Mark knows our propensity to lose our awe and wonder of Jesus. Mark knows how easy it is for the things of God to become too familiar for the people of God. He knows that we can all just get used to Jesus and not be awestruck by him anymore. So Mark wants to pass that awe down to his readers by showing us Jesus. It's what he's doing in his gospel. Mark knows that every moment of Jesus' ministry and every moment of our ministry is supposed to stir up and rekindle awe of God in the hearts of God's people. All ministry should do that. Every sermon should do that. Your family devotions are geared toward that. Your discipleship of others and their discipleship of you should do that. Reading your Bible should do that. All ministry should have as its goal awe of God, restoring to us again wonder and amazement that God loves sinners like us and did something about it through his son. And that's what Mark is aiming for in this chapter too. Mark's goal for chapter 13 of his gospel is not that we would become end times experts. That's not Mark's goal here. Mark's goal is to rekindle our awe and wonder of Jesus. I'm reminded of something that Ray Ortland said. He said, in the book of Acts, they preached and awe came down. You can't put that in your worship order. 10 a.m., awe comes down. You can't plan this. We can't plan this. It's not in our order of service here on Sunday morning. You can't say, we're having revival. Awe of God will take place at 10 a.m. after the offering. It doesn't work that way. You cannot plan it. You cannot structure it. The Spirit of God has to open your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. You have to have your eyes opened in order to see Jesus, to see him in his word, to see him in the gospel, to hear about him taking the sins of his people on himself on the cross and hear about him propitiating the wrath of God, turning away the wrath of God from us and our sin, and to hear about him conquering the evil one, and to hear about him overcoming the world and hear about his triumphant return one day. And you have to pray for this. It doesn't just happen. You have to ask God, come, don't let me lose my awe. Don't let me lose my wonder. God, open my eyes 
It's just so easy to lose our awe of God, isn't it? Especially in our world today, where social media blasts us with news and all the drama that's happening in politics and sports and Hollywood. And so our big idea today is this. Awe of God must dwarf the loudest news cycle. Awe of God, your amazement at what Jesus has done through his work for us, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again, his return, awe of God must dwarf the latest and the loudest news cycle. What's happening in the Supreme Court or what's happening on a tennis court? What's happening in the White House or what's happening in Hollywood, what's happening anywhere, will fight to quench your awe of Jesus. The loudest news cycle has as its goal to strike fear in your heart. They don't tell you this, but that's the goal. It's to strike fear in your heart when you get on Facebook. Put anger in your heart when you get on Twitter. Worry in your heart when you watch the news. The goal is to capture your heart. That's what the media wants to do. Awe of God must dwarf the loudest and the latest news cycle. If it doesn't, I promise you, you will waste away. It will eat away at you like a disease. It will suck the joy out of you. It will suck the life out of you. So what we're supposed to have happen is we walk away from Mark chapter 13. Turn there now in your Bibles if you haven't. What we're supposed to have happen as we walk away from Mark chapter 13 is that our awe should be restored. We're not supposed to walk away from this chapter claiming to be end times experts. We're supposed to be awestruck. There are, of course, four major ways to interpret Mark chapter 13. There are four major views of the end times. There are four main views of eschatology. That's the big theological word for how things are going to end in the end. Four major views of how this world will end. And no matter which view you hold, when you come away from this passage, your main takeaway should be awe and wonder of God. Not a feeling of being right, Not a feeling of having the correct end times position. Not a feeling of, I'm on the right team. You should leave Mark 13 and have your awe recaptured again. And so whichever end times camp you fall into, four main views, the dispensational view, the historic premillennial view, the postmillennial view, or the all-millennial view. the, The sermon notes will be online. You can look up those words later and say, I think that's who I am. Whichever camp you fall in, you should walk away from Mark chapter 13 being absolutely awestruck that Jesus loves you because you sinned big time this week. You should walk away awestruck that the king who's talked about in Mark 13 loves you and that he lived for you and died for you and is coming again for you. If you don't do that, then you're doing eschatology wrong. If you walk away from Mark 13 today full of pride because you think you have all the right answers about how the end times are going to be and you're not awestruck by the gospel, then you're doing eschatology wrong. 
Yes, one of the four main end times views will play out, and guess what? Only one of them will be correct. Depending on which view you hold, the other three are dying. They're not going to work out. Only one will live to the end. One end times position. Which one is that is up for debate. Perhaps you are convinced in your position this morning. Good. Perhaps you have no idea. Okay. Perhaps your mind will be changed in some direction today. Perhaps my mind will change as I preach this passage. I don't know. All I know is that I should leave this chapter in Mark and be freshly astounded that God loves sinners and did something about it and he's coming back again to make all things new and there'll be no Facebook on the new heavens and new earth. There'll be no Twitter fights. The government will be something we all love again. And there'll be no mayonnaise. And my end times position holds that truth. Which is why I hold my end times position. Because one of the main tenets of my end times position is that there's no mayonnaise in the new heavens and new earth. That's what sold me on it. So as we approach Mark 13, we should keep in mind that we are to read it forwards. From the first century, instead of reading it backwards from our time, which is what people tend to do. We have to approach this text and hear it as the disciples first heard it when Jesus was talking to them. And we have to hear it how Mark's original audience heard it, some 30 years after Jesus spoke these things. We can't read back from our position. We have to enter into them. Say, how did the disciples hear this? How did Mark's audience hear it 30 years later? And when we do that, we will discover that Jesus is not primarily speaking about some future that is still beyond us. He is speaking here primarily about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Something, in fact, that did happen in 70 A.D. Jesus is graciously telling the disciples what to expect sometime in the next 30 to 40 years after he ascends into heaven. He is telling them about how awful it will be in 70 AD when Titus brings his Roman army into Jerusalem and utterly destroys it and utterly destroys the temple. So how do we deal with today's passage? First, we must remember who Mark is writing to. He's writing to persecuted Gentile believers, probably in Rome, suffering under Nero. And the point that Mark wants to stress is that Jesus will return one day and that these believers must remain faithful and watchful. They must stay awake, not drift, not get caught up in the latest news cycle. That's the whole point of this passage. How do they get their hearts to that place? They have to have their awe of God renewed. So please understand, Mark is not primarily interested in charts and outlines about how the world will end. He wants to warn and comfort his suffering audience. He wants to give them back their awe. So look at Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple where Jesus has just denounced the religious authorities, the old covenant system, and he beat the religious leaders at four games of Bible trivia. We saw that over the last several weeks. Recall that Jesus taught them from Psalm 110 how he would reign on God's throne until his enemies were put under his feet. So Jesus will actually come back to this theme in Mark 13 as he predicts the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus' sermon here in Mark chapter 13 is actually a part of Psalm 110 being fulfilled and being played out. Jesus is going to tell the disciples how he will be reigning on God's throne in 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. All that happens in Jerusalem in 70 AD, some 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death, all that happens in Jerusalem in 70 AD is Jesus putting his enemies under his feet. Don't miss that connection here. So as they're leaving the temple, the disciples remark on how great the temple architecture is, and then Jesus drops a bomb on them and the temple. Jesus tells them that his day is coming when all of it will be destroyed. The temple and all the buildings will be destroyed just as if a bomb were dropped on it. It will be leveled to the ground, Jesus says. No stone on top of another. And so when they get to the Mount of Olives, Jesus answers the disciples' questions. And we know from Matthew's gospel in Matthew 24, the disciples actually ask Jesus two questions. Matthew 24, 3, And Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? That's the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And what would this be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus will answer both of these questions in Mark's gospel as well. So here are the questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What you just told us about. And number two, when will you return at the end of time? Jesus will answer these questions in Mark 13. And I believe that Jesus answers the first question. When will the temple be destroyed? In verses 5 through 32. Then he will answer the second question, when will you return at the end of time? And he'll answer that in verses 32 to 37. Now, if you studied eschatology in depth, you may be thinking, I don't, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. I know where you're going with this, Benji. If you have studied eschatology in depth, you may not agree with my conclusion. And I'm okay with that. As I said, there are four major ways to interpret Mark 13 and Matthew 24. You may be correct in your interpretation. You may be right. Or maybe I am. Or maybe that other guy who holds a different position from me and you, maybe he's correct. In the end, only one interpretation will be the correct interpretation. I don't know which one that is. But we won't know that until then, will we? So in verse 5, Jesus is now going to answer the disciples' first question. When will the temple be destroyed? Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Peter, James, John, and Andrew pull Jesus aside and they say, the four of us are dying to know when will all of this happen. Tell us, Lord. And Jesus responds by telling them that they need to make sure that they're not led astray by anyone who comes and claims to be Jesus, who comes and claims to be the Messiah. Jesus is telling them that they would hear it on the nightly news that the Messiah had come again and that they should not believe it. To understand this grace, awe of God will actually keep you from being deceived. Awe of God will keep you from being tricked by some false teacher or some false doctrine. So Jesus warns the disciples here about false messiahs that would come prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There's going to be false messiahs coming and claiming to be me, that I'm coming back. And we know from the Jewish historian Josephus, that this very thing did happen. After Jesus ascended into heaven, Josephus tells us there were many people, messianic pretenders, who rose up and claimed to be Jesus and deceived many people. Josephus lists various imposters who did this very thing in his writings. But Jesus also told the disciples that there would be wars and earthquakes and nations fighting against nation and famines, but this would not be the end of the temple yet. Jesus is telling them here to be aware of the onslaught of news cycles. When they get on Facebook, to be aware that all these things that they're going to read and hear about are supposed to happen. To be aware of the onslaught of news cycles that highlighted wars and famines and earthquakes. Again, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus that these things did happen. There were many wars prior to 70 AD, wherein large numbers of Jews were killed. 20,000 Jews were killed at Caesarea, Josephus tells us. 13,000 Jews were killed at Scythopolis. 50,000 Jews were killed in Alexandria and 10,000 in the city of Damascus. So these wars happened. And there were famines, which the book of Acts records. There were famines in the land. And there were many earthquakes. You can actually read about earthquakes in the works of the Roman uh, historians Tacitus and Suetonius. Isn't that a great name, Suetonius? You've got to say it with a southern accent. Suetonius. You can read about it. The Roman, not just the Jewish historian. We have Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, who tell us about all of these earthquakes that were happening. And we know in the book of Acts there are earthquakes. So all of these things, the wars, the earthquakes, the famines, Jesus says these are all birth pangs to let the disciples know that the time of the destruction of the temple was on its way, but it was not quite there yet. 
Jesus tells them this so that they will stay alert and not have their hearts captured by the latest and the loudest news cycles. Jesus doesn't want them to get on Facebook and hear about the slaughter of 50,000 Jews and start freaking out and get scared. He wants them to know these things are going to happen. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is preparing the disciples. He's preparing the early church who would be reading his words later on and hearing his words later on. He's preparing them for what was coming in 70 A.D. We know from the book of Acts that the disciples were actually brought before governors and councils, just like Jesus says here. You can read about it in Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 12, Acts uh, 24. They were brought before these, the synagogue and the rulers. This was part and parcel of what the Great Commission would bring with it, Jesus is saying, in its persecution. As the gospel is preached to all nations, persecution and suffering always follows, which is exactly what Mark's original audience were currently experiencing. They were suffering for following Jesus. And so Jesus' words here in Mark 13 that they're reading through Mark's gospel, they are being reminded, yeah, this happens. Christians suffer. And what enables believers to endure persecution and suffering? It's awe of God. So Jesus prepares and comforts them that when they are brought before religious and civil authorities, they don't have to worry because the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say. He's giving them a promise here. Jesus is saying, cling to my words. The Spirit will give you the words to say, hold on to my promise. Hold on to my word when you are suffering. And whoever stands firm and perseveres to the end through this series of events that leads up to 70 AD and that ultimately ends with the destruction of the temple, Jesus is saying that person will be saved right up to the end of their life because it's all God's work. But then Jesus picks up on something else that the prophet Daniel said, the abomination of desolation. And Jesus connects the abomination of desolation with the Roman emperor Titus. Jesus tells him, you're going to see the abomination of desolation on the nightly news one day. You're going to see it in your Facebook feed. And that will be the sign for you to get the heck out of Dodge or out of Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. That's Mark's little parenthetical note to his original audience. Understand, you're going to be seeing this in the next 8 to 10 years probably. So understand, you're going to see the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect 
but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. The phrase here, the abomination of desolation, is taken from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And it refers to an event that happened in 168 B.C. Daniel foresaw an event that was fulfilled when the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes went into Jerusalem and went into the temple And Antiochus Epiphanes, in 168 B.C., he declared himself, I am God, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. For a Jewish person to have someone walk into their temple and claim to be God and then to sacrifice a pig of all things on their altar, that was the abomination of desolation. Daniel said, it's going to happen, and it happened in 168 B.C. Daniel predicted this would occur And it did occur in 168 B.C. And now Jesus is saying that this prophecy will be fulfilled a second time. Jesus is basically telling the disciples, when you turn on your TV and you see another event like what took place in 168 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes did what he did, you'll know that the temple is about to be destroyed and that it's time to head for the hills to escape. Again, Jesus is giving them a word, a promise, his word that they can cling to when this happens. And this is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. Jesus picks up on this phrase of Daniel's and he connects it to the Roman emperor Titus. Jesus is warning the disciples that when they see Titus and his army marching toward Jerusalem, they need to hightail it out of the city. Jesus' point is very simple. When you get on Facebook and you see a video of the abomination of desolation, and you see Titus approaching Jerusalem on Facebook Live, immediately run to the hills and pray that it doesn't happen at a time or under circumstances which will make travel difficult for you. And in 70 AD, all of this came true. Everything that Jesus said came true. The Jewish historian Josephus said that there were over 1.1 million Jewish people who died in Jerusalem when Titus pummeled the city. The city was set on fire and there was so much bloodshed, Josephus says, that blood flowed through the streets. It began putting out the fires that had broken out. There were piles of dead bodies all through the streets. You couldn't even uh, walk through. Just piles. It was like a zombie apocalypse. Just dead bodies everywhere. The stench, Josephus said, was overwhelming and there was a famine. People were starving. Parents sold their children for food. People were eating from the sewers, Josephus tells us. People were eating pigeon dung. People were eating pieces of leather to satisfy their hunger. They were even eating hay, he tells us. And then Josephus says that on average... 500 people were crucified every single day by the Roman army. Every single day when you turned on your TV, they said another 500 people were crucified outside the city today. It was awful. You can read all, I'm not making this up, you can read about all of this in Josephus' account of what Titus did. It's awful. Just Google it. This really happened and Jesus The ever-loving shepherd is warning his people about what was coming in 70 AD. So this is pretty scary stuff, right? 
How could the disciples handle this? What were they to do? What did they do as they turned on the news? How could they deal with this fear? Understand this, awe of God is meant to disarm that fear. Awe of God and who he is as the sovereign Lord of the universe is meant to disarm all of that fear. That's how it operates. Awe of God disarms and dwarfs fear. So when your heart is so filled and satisfied with that reverential fear of God, then you will not be captured by all all of the horizontal fears of life in a fallen world. That's what the disciples were learning here. Vertical awe dwarfs the horizontal fears like what you see on Facebook or Twitter or what you see on the nightly news. Vertical awe of God, trusting in His Word, trusting in the Bible, trusting in His promises, dwarfs horizontal fears. Like what's happening in the White House or what's happening in sports or what's happening in Hollywood. It dwarfs horizontal fears like burned cities and 1.1 million dead bodies and temples being destroyed and blood flowing like rivers and 500 crucifixions per day. All of that happened in 70 AD when the abomination of desolation rolled into town with his Roman army. And what Jesus says in the next paragraph, I believe, is still directly related to what happened in 70 AD. And it was proof of God's judgment on the nation of Israel and the old covenant system. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I believe in verses 24 through 27, Jesus is still describing the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And he's doing it by using apocalyptic imagery, cosmic imagery, just like the prophets in the Old Testament did. And if anybody knew their Old Testament well, it was Jesus, right? Hey, Jesus actually knew what the prophets were saying. We're all probably a little foggy on that. Jesus knew his Old Testament well. Jesus is simply describing the fall of Jerusalem with the same language that the Old Testament prophets used. In the Old Testament, when the prophets would describe God's judgment on a pagan nation, sometimes they used cosmic language. And in verses 24 to 27, Jesus is describing God's judgment on Israel, his judgment on Jerusalem, the same way that God describes his judgment on the nations in the Old Testament. For instance, how does Ezekiel describe God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt in his prophecy? Answer, with the exact same words that Jesus uses. Listen, Ezekiel 32, 7 to 8. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. When there is massive political upheaval and the nations and the kingdoms are judged by God, the Old Testament prophets use cosmic language to describe their downfall. We see this exact thing with Joel, when, he judge, when God judges the nations in Joel. Joel 3, 14 to 15. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
the prophets in the Old Testament use cosmic language to describe God's judgment on nations and the political upheaval that happens as a result. And we see this when God judges Babylon in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 13.10 For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And when God judges Edom in Isaiah 34, verse 4, all the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here in verses 24 through 27. There is a shift in the political scene. Titus and his army come to destroy Jerusalem. And Jesus takes a cue from the Old Testament prophets. And he uses the same kind of language and the same cosmic imagery. So Mark chapter 13 verses 24 through 27 is not about the collapse of the universe at some time in the future. It's about the drastic changes in world events, namely the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus as a result of God's judgment. But what's most shocking with Jesus' words is that whereas the prophets always spoke of God's judgment on pagan nations, Jesus is using the same language to to describe God's judgment on the city of Jerusalem and its temple. The Son of Man, he says, comes in judgment, riding on the clouds, which is exactly how the prophet Nahum describes the Lord when he comes in judgment on the city of Nineveh. Nahum 1.3, it was our call to worship today. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum pictures the Lord approaching in judgment, and the clouds are like dust billowing up as he marches forward. And Jesus picks up on this imagery from Nahum in describing his judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD when he came in power and glory then and judged them. Do you remember what Jesus said back in Mark 9, 1? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That happened in 70 AD. They saw the kingdom of God coming in power. What does Jesus tell the high priest in Mark 14? After he's arrested, again, the high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks of his coming in glory, his coming on the clouds. And what happened in AD 70 was the fulfillment of that. Jesus came in power in 70 AD, riding on the clouds, like the prophet Nahum declared, as the ruling king. And he has been gathering his elect ever since his ascension. Mark is telling us that the gospel will go to the nations. He's telling us that in spite of what we see, the kingdom of God is advancing. Mark is telling us this so that we will not be gripped and paralyzed by fear, by what we see on the news, by what we read online. It's the exact same thing that the disciples were dealing with. The news cycle of 70 AD was terrorizing. And Jesus knew that it would be so, so he's trying to prepare the disciples beforehand so they would not be paralyzed by fear. He wants them to trust in and cling to his words that he's speaking to them, his promises. And awe of God comes from his promises. Awe of God must dwarf the loudest news cycle. Social media, TV, newspapers, the internet. 
Jesus continues and lets them know that they can be ready for this day. Look at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says that just like when the fig tree begins to bloom and you know summer is near, so too they will be able to tell when the temple's destruction was on its way. Jesus says you will see him. You will see Titus at the gates of the city. We know Jesus is talking about these events of 70 AD because he tells them this generation that I'm speaking to is not going to pass away until you see these things happen. It's not going to pass away until Titus comes and pummels the city. But then... Jesus finally answers their second question. When will you return at the end of time? Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus has just told them, you you can know the day when Titus is coming. That's the answer to the first question. You can know when that day is coming. You will see him at the gates of the city. You can't know the day when I'm coming back. He tells the disciples, no one knows that day. And in his humanity at the time of Jesus speaking this, Jesus did not know. Of course, as God, he knew. But in his humanity at that moment, Jesus did not know. Jesus wants them to stay ready and not get caught up with the latest news cycle. The bottom line of any discussion on end times should be that we stay awake. Let me ask you this moment. Are you awake? Are you just drifting through life, Christian? Are you awake to the realities that the kingdom of God is advancing in this world? Are you awake this morning? Are you just kind of stumbling through life half asleep? Jesus is telling you this morning, wake up. Stay awake. The bottom line of any discussion of end times should be that we stay awake, that we don't drift through life, that we have our awe of God rekindled. We're not called to fight and divide over end times positions. We are not called to fight and divide over end times positions. So that means that if you can't have a theological discussion about the end times and walk away as friends, you're doing eschatology wrong. If you can't talk about the four main end times views and not be open to the fact that you might be wrong, you're doing eschatology wrong. If you can't go to dinner or go to Starbucks with the person that you disagree with, you're doing eschatology wrong. If you walk away from Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and you are more concerned about setting dates and finding the Antichrist in some political figure, you're doing eschatology wrong. If you're reading your Bible or your newspaper side by side and you're trying to find the Antichrist in some political figure, you're doing your eschatology wrong. If you walk away from Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and you do not have a renewed heart for the lost, people are dying and don't know Jesus. If, that, if you don't have a renewed passion for evangelism, after you study eschatology, you are doing eschatology wrong. 
we should leave Mark 13 more alert, more awake, more awake to the gospel, more awake to the fact that Jesus lived and died for us. We should walk away from this text with a burning desire to see the nations of the world come to hear this good news. Studying the end times is all about recapturing your awe, not being right, not predicting Jesus' return, not coming up with elaborate charts, not looking for the Antichrist in the newspaper. Studying the end times, studying the Bible, studying God's word is all about recapturing your awe. And so between the sin of Adam at the beginning of the Bible to the final redemption at the end, there is a war raging over who or what will rule every human heart. That's the war. Who has captured your heart? What event in our world today has captured your heart more than the gospel? That's the real war here. Who has captured your heart? We're supposed to leave Mark 13 knowing that there's a greater story than my own personal little story. There's a greater story than what's happening in America. Recapturing our all means that there's a bigger and greater kingdom than my own little kingdom. Awe of God means that God has far bigger and better and more glorious plans for my life and for this world than any plans I have conjured up or dreamed up for myself. Awe of God must dwarf the loudest and latest news cycle. We'll close with something Paul Tripp said. I think more than ever before, Christians are news junkies. More than ever before, through social media and websites and a 24-hour news cycle, we are aware of what is happening around us. And I think for many of us, that has been the rise of fear. And maybe more than ever before, we need to quietly meditate and gaze upon the glory of the Lord so that we do not give way to fear. Let's gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and the glory of the Lord as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We should be awestruck when we look at this table. What's happening at this table trumps what's happening at the White House. No pun intended. What's happening at this table trumps everything that's happening in the White House, everything that's happening on Facebook, everything that's happening on social media. This table is the most revolutionary, crazy thing that has ever happened in this world. It's that God loves sinners so much that he gave his son for their sins on the cross. And he raised him from the dead and he's coming again. This is proof that God loves us. Let this table capture your heart this morning. There's mercy for you at the table today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us as evidenced in sending Jesus. The table before us is a megaphone telling us of your great love for us. Forgive us for being distracted by all the things of this world. Forgive us for losing heart, not staying awake, being caught up in everything that's happening in our government and losing sight of the simple truth that's echoing from this table today. There's forgiveness of sins for people who are willing to open the empty hands of faith. Forgive us, Father. Give us a renewed passion for the lost as we eat and drink and taste that you are indeed good. Help us not to divide over petty end times views. Help us to unite over the crucified, risen Lord who's coming again. In Jesus' name.